Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Crown him with many crowns, amen. amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, children. Can you give our children one more hand, please, today? We're proud of you guys. I'm just thankful to be a part of a church that invests in our children, uh, and many of you do, and so we're so grateful for you for that. So thank you. Thank you to every one of you who participates with our children in children's ministry. Um, God's got great things in store for that group of, of kiddos. So today we're in the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 23, finishing up chapter 23, looking at verse 50. Looking at verse 50, I'm going to read it again. Charlotte did a great job today. Thank you, Miss Charlotte. I'm going to read it again. If you'd stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 23, verse 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Don't you want God to say that of you? Verse 52. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Your word is a light or a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Your word is a glorious treasure of truth and wisdom. Your word, the sum of your word is truth. Would you please, by your Holy Spirit this morning, give us eyes to see your word. May, we, may you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. May we look upon you, behold you, be satisfied in you. May we be challenged and transformed as the Holy Spirit speaks to us the Word of God. May we see and may we look at this day that we're looking at here in the Scriptures and see how it applies to us. God, I, I pray for our world. I lift up the, uh, the folks of Ukraine who are now scattered across the world. I lift up um, the Russian president and beg of you to save his soul. I pray the very same things for the leaders of our nation. That you would turn their hearts to you. That there would once, be a king, once again be a king or a leader here that would have a heart 
after your own heart. Father, I pray for what's happening in Israel. We ask, Father, that you would protect the people of Israel in that country. We pray, Father, we don't know what the days ahead look like, but number one, we're thankful that you do. Number two, we're thankful that you're already there. We're thankful that our world is in your hands, and I'm reminded of the hymn of our faith, This is my Father's world. So God, when I begin to struggle with the things going on, remind me who created it, who set it in motion, who has redeemed it, and will one day be coming back to it to rule and to reign. Father, lift up our eyes to you. Thank you for our kiddos. Let them keep coming, Lord. Draw them, open them, save each and every last one of them from babies on up. Put the gospel seed in their heart that they one day would bear fruit for salvation. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this most holy week that we're starting today with Palm Sunday as we look to the resurrection of our dear Savior, Jesus. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, recap, uh, just a recap of the last 24 hours in the scripture. We see Jesus um, just uh, 24 hours ago gathering his disciples to the Lord's Supper. And all that went on there, the example that Jesus gave them, the foreshadowing of what washing feet meant, uh, what that kind of service would be. Matthew or Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says that Jesus... The Son of God did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to wash people's feet, but He, more importantly, came to cleanse their hearts and souls from that stain of sin. And He there was... Satan got into Judas, who would betray Him. Judas left the room with the plan of action in mind to go betray him over to the leaders of the Jews. That night they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, overcome with such great anxiety as to what was happening, prayed out to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering, this cup of judgment, let it pass over. It was almost as if God let Jesus see into the near future, this is what you're about to take place or is about to take place. This is the suffering that you're about to experience. And it wasn't the cross. It wasn't the pain that he would endure. It was the cosmic judgment that he would sit under. It was the, etern or the, the cosmic separation that he would experience being separated from God. There on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there in the garden, his disciples sleep. His betrayer comes, his accusers and arresters come in as if to get a, a criminal. They come with swords and clubs. One of the disciples slices off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals it. He says, it's not a time to fight with that, Peter. Jesus is handed over. The disciples flee. 
Can you imagine all that Jesus is going through on this, this, this last 24-hour period? Jesus goes to Caiaphas' house, which is just on the outside of the city walls. And he uh, goes to Caiaphas' house and he's taken down into the pit where he's held overnight. He's questioned. He is beaten and mocked. The next morning he goes to stand trial before Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate. All of them, well, Herod and Pilate both say he's innocent. There's nothing worth death found in this man. But nonetheless, he's handed over an innocent lamb to the slaughter. He goes to the cross and on the way to the cross, he falls and Simon of Cyrene is compelled to carry Jesus' cross. And when he falls, the women of Israel are weeping. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Because there's coming a judgment. A day of judgment is coming upon all who reject me. And that day is going to be a great and terrifying day. And in that day of judgment, you're going to call on the mountain and say, please fall on us and hide us from the great day of the wrath of God. Who can stand before God's wrath? And then he is taken to the cross, nailed to a cross, hoisted up in the air as a mockery before all men. And upon those who crucify him, upon the onlookers, upon the mockers, he pleads, pleads to the Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Criminal crucified on either side of our Savior. One of them mocks and rails at Jesus. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. And what he didn't understand is it, it was the very cross that actually was providing salvation for himself and for us. It was his death that would save us from the power of death. We see him breathe his last and commit his spirit to the Lord, reminding us that Jesus laid his own life down. Nobody took it from him. And today we come to the place of Scripture in chapter 23, verse 50, where we look at this man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we look toward this day known as Holy Saturday. And so today I want to look at verse 50. We'll spend a little while in 50, 51, and 52. And then we'll skip a lot of that and go to verse 56. Or move fast through that and then go to 56. Verse 50 says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. So a few things that we need to note about this Joseph. He was a member of the council. And if you'll remember back to chapter 22, verse 66, that Jesus was brought before the council. This council was made up of three groups of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, and elders of Israel, and they would sit in judgment, and they would decide on cases. And now Joseph of Arimathea was a member of that council, alongside, it seems, this man named Nicodemus. And Joseph was, uh, sat on that council. He was not just any regular Joe. He was a social and religious leader in Israel. He was a well-respected man. And what it says about him is that he was a good and righteous man. Now, the Scriptures, the New Testament actually, only calls two people good. Number one is Joseph of Arimathea. And number two is a man named Joseph called Barnabas. 
and that's found in Acts chapter 11. Only calls two people good, and Joseph of Arimathea is one of them. He was righteous. He was righteous. And that idea of righteous doesn't mean that he was blameless and perfect and sinless, but rather it means he loved justice. It proved the idea that Joseph was a just man, that in his search for God, the outward appearances and the opinions of man held no sway over his judgment, but rather he was good and he was righteous, he was equitable, he looked beyond others' opinions, and we see that in the very next verse where it says he, he did not consent to their decision, verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action, who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for truth, even if it burst his theological bubble. He was looking for the Messiah, and Joseph knew that what the council had done with this innocent man, Jesus, was unjust. He was good, he was righteous, and he did not consent with their deeds or their decisions and their actions. This is evidence for a strong sense of justice. A strong belief that God is acting in the world to bring his king and his kingdom. Can I just... I think we could talk a lot about Joseph, but I, I want to just encourage you. I want to beg of you. I want to plead with God. Oh, how we need a generation, a generation of Josephs. A, a generation of good and righteous, just people who stand against man's opinion who go against the grain of what everybody else is saying. You had Joseph, who did not consent with the opinions of the majority, but even as the minority position, he held firm to what he knew to be true. Oh, how we need a generation of Josephs. See, Joseph here, he stood out against what was displeasing to God in word and in deed. Now, can I just say how easy it is for us to stand out against what's wrong in word? We're really good at that. Amen? It's really easy to, to fight battles with our words, but it's much harder to do what Joseph of Arimathea has done, which is not just to uh, disagree with their decision and action, but in fact to go beyond that, to go ask Pilate for his body. It's really easy to be anti-abortion in word. It's much more difficult to be anti-abortion in deed. And what I'm not saying is, well, I've never done that, Ryan. But what I am saying is, what are we doing? Like Joseph of Arimathea, who did not consent to their decision and action... What are we doing to stand against unrighteousness, to stand for justice in this world that we live in? Oh, how we need a group of fearless men and women who would be the Josephs of the world. We need to be fearless. How can we be fearless in these days like 
Joseph seemed to be fearless in these days. Most of the time we think to be fearless, well, I just got to get rid of my fears. Stop being afraid, Ryan. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Have you ever tried to tell yourself to just stop being afraid of something? How does that work for you? Not very well, does it? So if there's a fear in my life, and I want you to know how I think we're all prone toward the fear of man. We all have this desire to be people pleasers, for people to like us. We all have innately the fear of man. And if you don't, I'm, my fear of man probably makes up for yours. We have the tendency to fear people. We want to be liked. We, we don't want to grind anybody's gears. We want people on both sides of the aisle to like us. And if I'm prone to that fear, if I have that fear, I can't just tell myself, stop being afraid of what others think about you. There's got to be something greater that pushes out that fear in my life. The Bible reveals from the beginning of Scripture, especially in the wisdom literature, that the fear of the Lord, finish it with me, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, it's the fear of God as it increases in your life. The fear of God drives out other fears, lesser fears in our life. I don't need to be less afraid of this. I need to, be, I need to have a greater fear of the Lord. Now, here's what I don't mean. That every time I think of God, I'm terrified of Him. There are different kinds of fears. And there's a, it's, think about it this way. There's a, one kind of fear that is the fear of a slave. There's another kind of fear that's the fear of a child. And we have not been given the, the fear of slavery. We have been given the fear of children. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, perfect love casts out fear. The fear of slavery. Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. God has not given you the spirit of slavery but the spirit of adoption by which we call out Abba, Father. Paul reminds Titus, chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind or self-control. He's not given us this spirit of slavery that leads us to fear. There's the, the fear of a slave and the fear of a child. The first one keeps me obedient, but keeps my heart very distant from God. The second one draws my heart to Christ. Spurgeon says it this way, The fear of God, as it exists in unrenewed men, is a force that always drives them further and further away from God. The unrenewed person will never get any rest of mind until they have ceased to think of Him. If a thought of God should perchance steal into their mind, fear at once lays hold of them again, and that fear urges them to flee from God. And that's not the fear that we have as God's children. We don't have this kind of fear that separates us, that we say, I don't want to think about Him. He's a terrifying one. I don't want Him in my life. But well, we have another kind of fear. The proper fear of God causes me to seek the Lord. Think about that. 
the, my, uh, a right fear of God causes me to go into His presence, causes me to seek Him with all my heart, causes me to love Him all the more, causes me to lean into God's presence. And, and Spurgeon, in the same in this sermon called The Right Fear, he says, the man who has this fear in his heart cannot live without seeking God's face, confessing his guilt before him and receiving pardon from him. He seeks God because of this fear. And when I fear God rightly, that fear casts out all fears. And what we see in Joseph is that he had the fear of God that drove out the fear of man. In verse 51 it says, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was not closed off to what God was doing. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Help me, Lord. And what that caused him to do is to see in Jesus something that drew him, that drew Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, a social and religious leader to the person of Christ. What was Jesus seeing? What was he looking for? What did he see in Jesus? What did it mean to look for the kingdom of God from a Jewish mindset? Maybe from the Jewish mindset to look for the kingdom meant to look for a prophet that would arise in the likeness of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, a, a, a scripture to be fulfilled. Maybe it would mean that he found in Jesus a priest that would come after the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110 verse 4. Maybe it would mean that he saw in Jesus a king that would come from Jesse's stump and David's lineage in Isaiah chapter 11 and in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Maybe he saw in Jesus the shepherd of shepherds that would come and unite God's people into one flock based on Ezekiel 34. I don't know exactly what Joseph saw, but what he saw as he was looking for the kingdom is he saw in Jesus God's man. He saw in Jesus the king who was coming. And it was through Joseph that God fulfilled the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. What we see is that Joseph went to Pilate. Can you imagine the, what this might cost Joseph to go to Pilate and ask for his body? Can you imagine he goes to Pilate, he asked for his body, then he took him down and he wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. And John chapter 19 also tells us that he was not alone in this, but that Nicodemus went with him. And Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of perfume and spices to anoint Jesus' body. And he grabs Jesus' body and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 says that he was laid in a rich man's tomb and God in his sovereign plan used Joseph of Arimathea to accomplish Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 a messianic psalm 
Verse 54 says it was the it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Verse 56, and they returned and prepared spices and ointment. Can you imagine what's going through their mind on this day? All the hope that they had had. I mean, it was just a few days ago. Just a few days ago that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on the colt on the foal of a donkey as the crowds were saying Hosanna Hosanna blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord peace on earth glory to God in the highest they were screaming out and the Pharisees and religious leaders said to Jesus would you tell them to be quiet what's Jesus say if they don't the stones will cry out and so we see in this passage we see in this passage this sense of what's next, this sense of despair, this sense of hopelessness, this sense of, of despair. Verse 56 says, They returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And this is where I want to sit for a minute. This day on the, in Holy Week is called uh, Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday. Now, we don't often celebrate Holy Saturday or think about Holy Saturday, do we? We've got the triumphal entry. Uh, we've, we've got uh, Maundy Thursday that we celebrate. Jesus on Wednesday, he cleansed the temple. On Maundy Thursday, we celebrate uh, the Seder or the Passover meal. And on Friday was Good Friday uh, where Jesus was crucified. And then most of the time, we just skip right over from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Praise the Lord, Jesus is risen but I think for us, we really need to take a look at Holy Saturday. See, uh, what, what we do is, as Christians is we go from Friday, skip over the middle, and go straight to resurrection. And we miss the point that there's something happening on Saturday that's unseen. We skip over Holy Saturday. And, and so Holy Saturday sat in between of what Christ accomplished on the cross uh, uh, on Golgotha. He, it, it, it sits in between what was finished there and what is to come on Sunday. And I don't know if you understand this about where we sit in the story of redemption, but we kind of sit in between a hypothetical finished work and promise to be fulfilled. Have you noticed that? Uh, we sing a song sometimes called, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. It goes on to say, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take the seal and open the scroll? It points to Jesus is worthy. Straight out of Revelation. So we live in, in the time of history between Jesus' finished work on the cross, the empty tomb, and his ascension, and between the promises that he made that he's not yet fulfilled. And that's exactly what we see on Holy Saturday. Don't you remember? Jesus said many times throughout the Gospels, I, I, don't worry, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be crucified. There uh, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest, I'm going to be beaten, crucified, but on the third day I'll rise again. And it, they missed it. They missed it. 
They didn't get it. They didn't live in light of the promise. They saw only the finished work of yesterday, but they didn't understand how to live on Holy Saturday. And for us, we kind of live in a season of Holy Saturdays. In between the, what Christ did and what Christ will do. Amen. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like I'm so thankful for what he did then and I can't wait for then, but what do I do right now? How do I live right now? We live in the Holy Saturday of Holy Week. And so I want to point, I want us to look at three things, three things this morning of how Holy Saturday applies. What do we do with Holy Saturday in our hearts? What do we do when we feel like we're in between the already and not yet? Like we're living in the wilderness of, of the Exodus. What do we do? Three things. Holy Saturday teaches us. Number one is we rest in God's finished work. On Holy Saturday... So literally, on this coming sun, or Saturday is the official Holy Saturday. We rest. Saturday was the Sabbath. Do you see in verse 56, it says, On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Even in the middle of all that was going on, these ladies, these men saw the Sabbath coming and they rested according to the commandment. There was no panic. There was, no, there was nothing happening. They rested there on the Sabbath. And we ought to rest in Christ's finished work. See, the Sabbath was ordained all the way back in Genesis. And it was ordained by God in creation. The Sabbath is not something that came in the Levitical law or in the book of, the, uh, the book of Exodus. The Sabbath was ordained for us at creation. Now, let me tell you something. We stink at honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. We stink at it. Most of the time, we substitute Sunday for the Sabbath. All right, according to the Jewish calendar, is Sunday the Sabbath? No, Saturday is. Now, Paul talks a little about this, and he, he says, now this is an area that Christians can agree to disagree over and still love one another. He said, some of you hold one day as holy, and some of you hold that all, all the days are holy. But we need to learn to honor the Sabbath. We need to learn to rest in God's finished work. We need to learn to rest. Some of you are falling asleep right now because we're not rested. I have that way with people. I'm really good at it. Somebody said, Pastor, you just have a soothing voice. Whatever you want to tell me, I just, just have a way with putting people to sleep. And we need to learn to rest. We need to learn to honor the Sabbath. Why? Because we need to obey the law? No. Because before the law ever came, God gave us a day to sit aside and to soak in what, who God is and what God accomplished on our behalf. And for us as Christians, we need to learn to take time out of our week to sit and to soak in the Sabbath day. Whether it's Saturday or Saturday evening or Sunday afternoon, whatever it is, we need to find a time to disconnect from the world and the busyness of it, to not have a to-do list and just to sit but I think this text helps us understand that we don't, as Christians, we need to think about the Sabbath differently. 
The Sabbath is not just a day where God rested from His work in creation, but the Sabbath was now a day where God rested from His work in redemption. On this day, Christ had accomplished redemption for everyone in the world. Every person who would look upon Jesus and trust in Him for salvation, Christ accomplished redemption, and He says, rest on Holy Saturday. The author of Hebrews says it something like this in chapter 4. He says, if Joshua had actually been able to give the people of Israel a rest, why is it that God speaks of another rest to come? We know this rest is a Calvary rest, not a Canaan rest, but a Calvary rest. God gave to you and to me a rest where we cease from works. And what I think the author of Hebrews intends is that we stop trying to work for our salvation and we rest in what God has finished there on the cross. There on the cross, God accomplished everything necessary for salvation. You don't owe uh, you cannot give God a single percent that adds to what Christ has already accomplished. If you think that you can add to what Christ has accomplished, you immediately diminish Christ's work. If I think it's Jesus plus anything, I diminish the finished work of Jesus Christ there on the cross. And Holy Saturday reminds us that we rest from working from our salvation or for our salvation. Why? Because Christ has done all the work necessary. We rest in His finished work. That does not mean, that does not mean we rest from all work. We stop working for salvation, but let me tell you what we now work toward. We work toward the salvation of others. That is the work that we should labor diligently for. God has ordained His church and set them out as the only organization ever known to man that exists for those who are not yet a part of it. And we ought to work for the salvation of those who are not yet a part of God's kingdom. That's why we had the Easter egg hunt. Not because we were bored. Not because Laura didn't have anything to do. By the way, Laura, you did a fantastic job leading us yesterday. Yeah. But many of you came yesterday because we desire to work toward the salvation of the unredeemed. Those who are not yet saved, we want to see them come into salvation. And when they do, they'll come in through the finished work of Jesus and they will enter into that rest. The second thing that we're reminded of on Holy Saturday is we rest in God's presence. We rest in God's presence. The story of the Bible teaches us time and time again that sin separates us from God. God created us, put us into His presence, and sin has separated us from that presence. And because our sin separates us from God, all of the rest of the Old Testament is trying to get us back into the presence of God. God sends the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead Israel to be with them, but to be holy from them. It wasn't the same as in the garden where God walked with them and talked with them in the cool of the day. It wasn't the same as when they knew God face to face. Although there was a separation, God was still among them. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant all point to God being among them, but it's not the same. 
The prophets point to God being among His people. The priests point to God being among His people, but not in His people. But Jesus comes to do something. Jesus comes to bring near to God all those who are far off. Jesus came to seek out the one sheep that had gone astray, and we are all that one sheep that had gone astray. And to bring us back to the shepherd. Jesus came to bring us back to God. He came to bring us into His presence. Why, how in the world is it that Jesus can bring us into His presence? It's because He is the great high priest that we saw last week who tore the veil in the temple in two that holy God might come and dwell in sinful man once again. Jesus died on the cross so that all who might put their faith in Him might receive the promised Holy Spirit who would not dwell on them or among them, but in them. And the Holy Spirit Saturday reminds us to rest in His presence. Psalm chapter 77, at the end of Psalm chapter 77, it says, Your way was through the sea, yet we did not see your footprints. You, but you led Israel like sheep, like a shepherd by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We see you among us. We see you in us. And on Holy Saturday, we rest in His presence. And the third thing, we trust that God is working. We trust that God is working. We rest in His finished work. We rest in His presence and we trust that He's still working. Isn't it good news that we know the rest of the story? See, the the disciples didn't know the rest of the story. They didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow, but we know the rest of the story. We know that on the third day, at daybreak, Jesus gloriously burst out of that tomb with a new and indestructible body, never to die again. We know the end of that story, but they didn't. And so now looking back on Holy Saturday, when all is quiet, tensions are high, questions are many, we know that God wasn't finished working just yet. And isn't it good to know that even when we don't understand, even when we can't see what God's doing, we can trust that God's still working? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad of that for you? Aren't you glad that you're an unfinished work, that you're a work in progress, that God is still working to sanctify you and make you more like Jesus and God just didn't finish with you yet? Aren't you glad that God has not given up on you? Aren't you glad that you can't out His grace? Aren't you glad that you can't run from His presence any longer because it dwells in you and is working day by day to sanctify you even when you don't see Him at work? Aren't you glad that when, that when you can't see His footprints, you know that He's present working? I find great comfort to know that whether it's in my own life or my own little family or our big church family or the church, capital C church around the world, God's not done yet. That He's still working. That He's still moving. That he's still just as powerful. Holy Saturday reminds us to trust that God is working. Can I just confess that sometimes that's hard. It's hard to see that God's working in the middle of all this mess. But Holy Saturday reminds trust it. Trust that God is working in the middle of the mess. To work out a great ministry. This brings us to the Lord's Supper. 
uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper on this Palm Sunday, this day we're remembering the Holy Saturday, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, the broken body and the shed blood, we look to this moment and we rest in God's finished work. We rest in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing miraculous or special or uh, uh, um, something like that. It's, this is going to take away your sins. This does not take away your sins. Rather, this reminds us of what Christ accomplished that day on the cross for you and for me. It reminds us that we can rest in His presence, that He is tabernacling among us right now. That He dwells inside of each one of us by the Holy Spirit. This is a symbol of that, and it's a symbol that God isn't finished yet. That He's not finished with me. That this reminds me that daily I need His grace. Daily, every time I wake up, I need His grace more than I did the day before. I need His grace, and His grace is sufficient. He's not done with me, but it also reminds us that Jesus is coming back. This, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and Paul says, do it with such a way, looking backward at the cross of Christ and looking forward to His return. Do it until He returns. And so we remember today. We rest in His finished work. We rest today in His presence. And we trust that He's still working. And we do this today through the Lord's Supper. Now, a couple warnings. The Lord's Supper is not for everybody. If there's a child in here who has not trusted the Lord, this is not for that child. Parents, adults, that might mean you have to have a good conversation later. The Lord's Supper is for Christians because it symbolically says that Christ has died for me and I take that into my life once again. We're going to have a time. I want to give you some instructions. Miss Margaret is going to come play for us. And as Miss Margaret comes and plays for us, our deacons will take their positions behind each one of the tables and you will come forward. We're asking you to come forward and take the Lord's Supper. You come down the aisles. And, and, uh, and what you're going to do is you're going to come. You're going to, if you would like to use this altar as a place to kneel before the Lord, to confess sin, to recommit your life to Christ, to get right with Him through Jesus, if you want to do that, you use this altar for a moment of personal reflection. You pray, let this be meaningful for you. So you're going to come forward, the deacons will serve you, Mr. Steve will have a tray that is going to go around for anybody who's not able to get up, he would be glad to serve you, and so if you can grab Mr. Steve's attention he will be honored to serve you the Lord's Supper. And then what you're going to do is you're going to grab the elements and you're going to go back to your seat and you're going to be patient and you're going to wait on everybody to, to meet with the Lord and to do business with God and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. So come at your convenience. Kneel before the Lord. Pray 
families come together, couples, husbands, wives come together, pray, grab the elements, let the deacons serve you, go back to your seats, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me as I ask God to prepare us for this holy moment? And then you'll be free to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we come into your presence now. And we thank you for your finished work on the cross. We thank you that your work is not yet done. That you are still moving among us. You're still changing. You're still saving. And one day you're coming back. Help us to see Holy Saturday in a new light, Lord. I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, before we do, before we take the Lord's Supper, potentially in an unworthy manner, Father, that we would get our hearts right with you. So bring up right now by your Holy Spirit, bring to our minds conviction of sin, an unrepentant lifestyle, or even somebody here who needs to trust in Jesus first as Lord and Savior. And then, Father, I thank you for our deacons who will serve us the elements of the Lord's Supper. God, work among us. Work in our hearts. Lead us closer to Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So at your convenience, you move, you come to the tables, you come to the altar, you do what the Lord would have you do. And you come and meet with the Lord.
Does anybody need to be served this morning who's not been served already? Thank you, Mr. Steve. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he takes a loaf of bread, he breaks it, and he passes it to each of his disciples, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us commune together. And on that very night, he takes a cup of wine, he said, this is a cup of the covenant, the covenant of my blood. Take it and drink. Do it in remembrance of me. Jesus says, I will not drink of this wine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. So as we do this, we look back, we look forward. Let's commune together. And would you stand with me as we conclude our service? We've got one final closing song. And as we sing together, let's look back to what Christ has done and let's look forward to what He's going to do. Praise God for His blood. Amen.
Amen. Now, as you go this morning, remember that we have pictures for those of you who are not in our last uh, directory, pictures today in the parlor. You can follow these ladies out in just a moment, uh, but head that way. Uh, Also, this coming Wednesday, we do not have Wednesday evening dinner or services of any kind, any services of any kind. So this week, we have nothing on Wednesday night. Um, And I also want to ask you to do me a favor. This coming Sunday is Easter. I don't know if you knew that. It's coming. Uh, Easter Sunday. And um, I want to ask you to do two favors. One, pray and ask God who you might invite. Bring them with you. Ask them to sit near you. Meet them in the parking lot. This is one of the two days of the year where non-Christian people are most likely to come to church. Invite them. Let's not miss the opportunity. And second, if you're on Facebook, if you're not on Facebook, you got it better than all the rest of us. But if you are on Facebook, um, on Seneca Baptist's page, uh, there's an Easter post, an Easter image that invites people to come uh, join us for Easter service. If you would share that for us and get the word out that way, who knows who might be attracted to Jesus because of your simple sharing of what God's doing at your church. All right? Let's pray and dismiss. Father God, we love you. Thank you for what you've done for us. We are so thankful that we can rest in your finished work. We can rest in your presence and trust that you're still working in the middle of all of these things. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church, for those that are coming to our church, um, for a sweet pastor and uh, his wife who are here with us today from the low country. We're so thankful. We pray that you would bless their church. Bless their work. God, use them in great ways down uh, in Monk's Corner area uh, to um, expand the gospel. Help them to be bold in their witness. Help them to be fruitful in ministry. The fields are white for the harvest, Lord. Send us out of this place armed with the gospel and filled with the Spirit to be ambassadors and workers in your field. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you.